welcome to the Clerk Commute Podcast. Where we discuss clerkship content, share up-to-date research, work through interesting cases, and gather position advice for your next rotation. Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of the Clerk Commute. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Raza, a family medicine physician at St. Michael's Hospital and past chair of Canadian Doctors of Medicare. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Raza. We're really looking forward to our conversation. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into questions, would you be able to give a little introduction about yourself and maybe explain what your journey was like that led you to your current practice and what along the way inspired your passion for improving pharma care? Yeah, very, very happy to. Um, so I'm, I'm working now at uh, St. Mike's and as part of our family health team. And the clinic that I worked at is just in the east end of the city in, uh, in Regent Park. Um, and, you know, I came to this issue uh, because, I, you know, even before medicine, I was interested in issues of social justice. I was that kid in high school organizing boycotts against Nike sweatshops. <laughs> I like to say that kind of social justice brought me to medicine as opposed to the other way around. And now I do things with a health lens. And, you know, just like, just like, you know, you and your classmates are not just learning about, uh, you know, physiology and, and, you know, appropriately forgetting about things like the Krebs cycle to make room in your brain for more important things. I was doing the same. I was looking, you know, especially my clinical experiences, not just at the, you know, patients as, you know, individual organs, but how they move through the system and seeing how the system worked in ways um, uh, that it was supposed to, but also in ways that were clearly um, not providing the best, <clears throat> the best care. And this was one issue, of course, that I saw we all see when it comes to prescription drugs. We all see if we're looking, right, and if we're asking about it. And so then early in my career, I joined the board of directors of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. And I got to learn, you know, I got to kind of peek behind the curtains and, and um, really get a deep dive from people who knew a lot more about the issue than I did into how the system works. And I've just been, you know, learning more since um, turning and mobilizing that knowledge into advocacy and activism uh, around this issue to try and make things a little bit better. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That sounds like quite the journey. And it's really nice to hear um, about how social justice really brought you to medicine as opposed to the other way around. Um, so I think to get started, um, we just want to start with some general questions about pharmacare in um, Ontario. So I think a lot of medical students are generally unfamiliar with pharmaceutical access in Canada or are a bit overwhelmed by the multitude of different options for accessing pharmaceuticals. So for example, out of pocket versus federal insurance um, versus provincial. Um, so we were wondering if you could explain to us some of the most common ways that patients in Ontario pay for their medications. Yeah, I think it's a great question because, you know, when people think about our universal healthcare system, I think they really need to realize it's universal for only two things, right? Medicare is only universal for two things. One is for hospital care and two is for doctor visits, right? But everything else, which is a lot of stuff, right? So not just prescription drugs, but psychology services, physiotherapy, home care, long-term care, none of these are covered by our universal healthcare system in a universal way. So, for example, prescription drugs, right, which we're talking about today, uh, if you look at spending, just over 40% of all dollars are public, which means 
the majority is private spending, right? People are either paying out of pocket or if they're lucky enough to not just have a job, but a good job with benefits, right? They can use those. Or if they're, you know, students in university, they'll have a student health plan or if they're covered by their parents and their parents have a job linked um, plan, then they're covered that way as well. But of course, that leaves a ton of people out. And that leads to this phenomenon called, you know, if you look it up in the literature, cost-related non-adherence, uh, which basically means patients are unable to take medications, not because they don't want to, but because they can't afford to. Thank you for that overview. So in your practice, for example, um, in Regent Park, when patients come, generally, how are they paying for their medications, would you say? Um, are most of them, do most of them have coverage or do most of them not? Um, and if they don't, or if they do, how are they accessing that coverage? I would say, uh, you know, in my practice, there's a significant portion that do not have coverage. And the reason why is I work in a community that is disproportionately low income and racialized. And those are also the communities that um, have uh, more difficulties accessing and paying for medications, right? The reason being is if you're, on t if you're in Ontario, and just as a, you know, related side note, because our universal healthcare system only covers doctors and hospitals, that's the one thing that's true from coast to coast. But if you're a listener in Nova Scotia and you're listening to this, your drug plan will be completely different than it is in Ontario, which is different than BC, etc. But if you're in Ontario, you are covered if you're poor enough, right? So if you're on social assistance, you have access to the public drug plan. If you're young enough, right? So if you're younger, if you're 25 or younger, or if you're old enough. If you're 65 or older, then you're covered by the public plan. Um, and then, as I said, have a private plan. You have to have not just any job, but a good enough job with benefits. Um, and this leaves a ton of people out because, you know, as we know, the sorts of jobs that are available now are, we call them precarious jobs, where they're more gig work or part-time. It's harder to get benefits. And so sometimes... Folks in these jobs are called precarious workers or the working poor. So these are my patients who are doing things like driving cabs, right, or driving an Uber, or stocking shelves, or um, you know waiting on tables. These are the sorts of folks that are really struggling, and it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of an upside down phenomenon, right? Because we also know, you know, from the social determinants of health literature, that the wealthier you are the healthier you are. Uh, yet, you know, we look at income and drug coverage and the lower income you are, right, unless you're on social assistance, the harder it is for you to get coverage. Uh, so we're kind of, we've kind of flipped this system upside down here in a way we probably shouldn't be doing. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for expanding um, upon that a little bit. So, to continue on that conversation of excluding some groups, um, why do you think, or sorry, let me rephrase that. So just expand upon some of your um, thoughts about how certain groups are kind of excluded from coverage. Um, which patients in particular are more likely to fall through these gaps? And what do you think the specific gaps in our system are that kind of lead to this? Yeah, so if you're a precariously employed, um, you're very likely to fall through the gaps in terms of prescription drug coverage. 
Um, even if you have drug coverage, if you require a lot of medications, sometimes you can, you still have to pay a lot out of pocket, right? So for things, you know, they're called co-pays or deductibles, uh, because as the cost of prescription drugs are getting more expensive, uh, a lot of private drug plans are, are the coverage is, is kind of declining, right? And more of those costs are being passed on um, to patients. Uh, if you're... Um, uh, if you're racialized, uh, if you're a part-time worker, all of these put you, at, uh, if you're part of any of these communities, there's a greater chance that you're facing cost-related non-adherence, that you're skipping medications, not taking them, or not taking them the way they're prescribed because of the money. So currently, we know that Canada is the only developed country that has a universal health insurance system that does not provide universal coverage for prescription drugs. So is there a reason that Canada's Medicare system excludes prescription drugs? Yeah, yes. I mean, and so this is going to be a mini history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, if you look at the history of Medicare, right, Medicare came to be in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, that was 50, 60 years ago at a time when most got sick, it was, they got sick with acute illnesses, right? So care was really centered around the hospital. Um, their chronic disease was not as of a big deal as it is now, right? Where in 2023, the disease distribution is, is much more focused on chronic than acute disease. So when universal healthcare and, and universal health insurance came to be, the priorities were to get doctors and hospitals covered. But that was only supposed to be the first phase of Medicare, right? Tommy Douglas, who was the premier in Saskatchewan, who's, who's credited as being the father of Medicare, he had this vision for a second stage of Medicare, which was going to expand coverage to services outside of the hospital that would focus on chronic disease, but not just reimagine what's covered, but the way we deliver care as well. This was the second stage of Medicare, but we never got there. We're in this state of arrested development where we got to stage one. We've never reached stage two. And one of the consequences is exactly what you said in your question. We're the only high income country in the world with a universal health care system that does not have a universal drug plan. And, you know, as a consequence, we have some of the highest drug spending in the world. We're usually third or fourth. You know, we just make the podium, but it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not a metal we should be happy about one day. I just, we had this plan 50, 60 years ago that there was going to be the second phase of including prescription drugs. What barriers have been in place that have not allowed for that to happen since? Yeah, so if you go back to the beginning, I hate to say it, but it's doctors, right? The initial fight to get Medicare was fiercely resisted by doctors and organized medicine. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why we never got to stage two. Um, things have changed, whereas now, um, not all, but many doctors and many of our organizations are championing universal coverage for prescription drugs. So that's happily changed. But anytime you change the status quo, right, there are going to be many people who benefit, but there are some people who are going to, who will benefit less or who will take a bit of a hit. So for example, one of the reasons we have such high prescription drug costs is because our prices for prescription drugs are really high. So that means especially brand name pharmaceutical companies are able to make a lot of money here. 
And if we were to move towards universal pharmacare and make it a sustainable system, one of the things we would do is we would get a fairer deal so that the drugs that the prices that we pay in Canada and the spending that we uh, spend in Canada would be closer to the international average. And so drug companies would still be profitable just like they are in other countries, but they're not going to make as much money. So they actually have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Um, and they're influential, right? Policymakers listen to them. So that's one reason why. And similarly, insurance, right? People, insurance companies sell private insurance because they, it's profitable for them. And if we shift coverage from private coverage to public coverage, that's going to eat into their market share. So they have an interest in maintaining the status quo as well. So anytime we make any changes in policy, we have to be real about it, right? There is definitely net benefit, but there are some people who will benefit less than they do now. And there are folks who, who would prefer uh, who would prefer less of a change. Why do you think there was an initial resistance or pushback from doctors in the beginning that you mentioned? When Medicare was first proposed in Saskatchewan, physicians were very fearful that it would um, interfere with their clinical autonomy, right? Like, you know, we see some of the same rhetoric now in the U.S. where there's this movement towards Medicare for all led, led by folks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, where one of the talking points against it is the government's going to get between, you know, you and your doctor. And so, you know, in Canada, this battle was fought 60 years ago, but a lot of the rhetoric was the same. But what actually happened was that doctors really enjoyed the system because it meant that they weren't fighting to get paid, right, from, from insurance companies. They didn't have to do the same level of paperwork. Um, they didn't have to uh, worry about, uh, okay, my, you know, how am I going to design my practice? How am I going to have like a charity wing, et cetera, because everyone was covered. So actually physician satisfaction with Medicare was quite high, but there was a big fear, uh, a fear of change at the beginning. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think uh, I can understand how that could be a much longer answer as well. Maybe we'll have to do a part two on that one time. You mentioned that now there are a lot more groups, including a lot of physicians who see the benefits of having drug coverage. I don't know if you have an answer for this, but do you see that progress has been made? Do you, do you see if that's something that may be coming in the near future? Before COVID came, we were the closest we had ever been really since the inception of Medicare to expanding it to include anything, right? In this case, prescription drugs. COVID, like, like it did to many things, it derailed this conversation. And I think we're at a point now where we're struggling to get it back on the table. We had some very promising commitments from the current federal government prior to COVID-19. And I think it, it's a bit of an open question as to whether they're serious about fulfilling them or not. So if you had asked me this question in 2019, I think I would have given you a more optimistic response than I have in 2023. But we're, we're definitely not at the end of the road. Um, there's this, uh, there's been this agreement signed, it's called a confidence and supply agreement between the Liberal Party of Canada and the, the NDP um, 
to, to help govern uh, govern parliament. And one of the conditions that the NDP put on the deal was to get something called the Canada Pharmacare Act passed by the end of the year. Um, and I think the question is, is this going to be, uh, what's going to be in this act? Is it going to be the sort of you know public single-payer program that's being recommended by the federal government's own advisors, or will it be something else that's watered down? So the good news is, is we actually have something on paper, a commitment, but the open question is, what is that commitment going to look like? Um, and the call to action is, what are we going to do as civil society, as healthcare workers, to try and make sure that whatever gets passed in the Canada Pharmacare Act is resembles the uh, the best program possible. On that note, as medical students or as clerks, do you have any actionable tips or any recommendations of someone who's interested and passionate about this of how they um, how they can get involved or anything that, that we can do as students? I think number one, help your patients. Number two, fix the system. So how do you do that? Help When you help your patients, I'm talking about when you're doing inpatient medicine and you're getting involved in discharge planning and you've, you're, you've asked your patients that you're taking care of, do they have a drug plan? Do they have drug coverage? If they don't, then it means working with a team pharmacist um, on your ward to figure out how can you make sure that this patient has coverage so when they're when they're discharged from the hospital they can actually take the medications um, that your that that their recovery plan their discharge plan revolves around when you're doing outpatient clinics whether it's specialty clinics or primary care family medicine clinics it's asking those same questions on a longitudinal basis working with the pharmacist that you work with on those teams as well. Pharmacists are your best friends on this issue. They know the system inside and out. They know how to navigate it. They know all the nooks and crannies. So get to know your team pharmacists. So help your patients, number one. Number two, fix the system. This is a obviously <clears throat> a bigger and a longer term project. And this is gonna sound cynical, but it's not. But one person can't make a difference. But if you work, as part of an organization that is taking a strategic approach to this, you as an individual can make a huge difference. So obviously one of the roles I have is as the, on the board of pain doctors for Medicare, where one organization that's doing uh, work on this. Another great organization is the Canadian Federation uh, for Medical Students. So I, a number of years ago, they actually organized a lobby day on Parliament Hill, focused on pharmacare. Um, and that is an issue that they've championed as well for my students. Uh, there are people, you know, all across the country, uh, all stages of training who are really passionate about this issue. So if you are one of them, find your people, find your organization, sign up and, um, and you know, join the movement to try and uh, end this 50 to 60 year old uh, gap to, to end the unfinished business of Medicare. What do you think some of the consequences are that we're going to see as a result of some of the gaps in the drug coverage system until we kind of move towards more of a universal um, coverage? Well, there are very real and material consequences, and we're seeing them every day. So um, one example is there are nearly a million people in Canada who are doing things like 
reducing the uh, their cost on heating, like they're turning down the thermostat in the depths of winter to save money on hydro so that they can pay for prescription drugs. They're cutting down on food purchases to do that as well. And um, there was a great report put out by the Canadian Federation of Nurses a few years ago with a very vivid name. It's called Body Count that actually looked at hospital re- uh, cost cost related non-adherence admissions uh, mortality and morbidity assessed with this issue, with the fact that patients can't afford uh, the prescription drugs that they need. So these are very real consequences for our patients and for our neighbors. So next, shifting gears a little bit to talk more about the implications that the lack of access to drugs has um, in day-to-day clinical practice. So we know that about one in 10 Canadians have reported not adhering to prescription medications like you talked about due to costs, and one in five individuals with mental health conditions cannot afford their prescription medications. So given that cost-related barriers to medication adherence are so common, is there anything that physicians should know or, or that us students as future physicians can do to support individual patients who in the moment when you're um, trying to prescribe something may have difficulty affording their medications? Yeah, absolutely. So whenever you're writing a prescription, ask yourself and ask the patient what sort of coverage that they have. And if they don't have any coverage, then just like you would, you know, consult a specialist or consult a service or you go to your chief resident or your senior medical students and you ask them for advice. If this if your patient doesn't have drug coverage, go to your pharmacist and ask them for help uh, because they, you know, sometimes they're there just isn't a program, but sometimes there is. And it's a matter of filling in the right uh, paperwork or the right form and getting uh, the patient, if not complete coverage, at least partial coverage. And that can make a really big difference for that individual patient. So yeah, there's absolutely um, things you can do. And not only that, but you could be the person on your team that's asking that question, right? There, It's becoming more and more routine and regular to systematically ask and identify these sorts of things, right? These unmet social coverage needs, but it's, I, I don't think it's quite the norm yet. Um, so you could be that one member on the team who's asking that question when no one else is. What are some resources or where are clerks and medical students able to find some resources that can help us identify programs or different services to help our patients with um, obtaining coverage if they don't have any. Yeah. So <clears throat> if you just Google, uh, uh, so I'm going to struggle with this answer because there is no one place. To... <laughs> so let me, let me actually just say that. Let me study. This is a very hard question to answer because there is no one place to point you to. The reason why there is no one place to point you to is because we have a broken system that is at best patchwork. And that's one of the big reasons why we need universal coverage. So that is the real but unfortunate answer. And it instead, this sort of knowledge lives in people's heads. Um, and you, it's about tapping into those heads. So whether it's your seniors, whether it's other team members, that's often the best place to ask. So only about 60% of patients who are eligible for public drug plans are actually enrolled in them. So what are some of the barriers 
barriers to enrollment in these plans and how can we help to reduce those barriers for eligible patients that we encounter? That's a really good question. Uh, one, of the one of the barriers is just is complexity, right? When you go to the hospital or go to your doctor, you just need a health card and that's it, right? That's, that's how you're covered. But for prescription drugs, there are so many different public programs, right? We have one formulary, a formulary is a list of medications that, for example, the Ontario government covers, but to access that, you have to fill in the right paperwork and on, depending on who you are and what your situation is, the paperwork is different, right? Are you the right age? Are you covered by your parents or not, even if you are the right age? Do you, are your drug costs catastrophic? What's catastrophic? It's 4% of your income unless it's not, unless it's 2% of your income. Have you filled in your, your tax returns? Because you need that for, this, for your income to be judged to see if they're catastrophic or not. Oh, you're on social assistance. Are you on OW or ODSP? How, do you have your drug card? Did you take your drug card to your pharmacist, right? It is, uh, it is just, uh, it's a bit mind-bending. Uh, mind uh, and that's why, frankly, actually 60%, I think is a very high number, it's a higher number than I would have expected. But that's why it's only 60%, because the pathway to get coverage that not even everyone is eligible, that even for the folks that are eligible, it's so complicated. It's more complicated than it used to be. Thank you. Um, I have one final question before we end off. Um, kind of one big takeaway for some of our clerkship student listeners. So if let's say you're a clerk on the wards um, and you're maybe in an inpatient setting and you're about to discharge um, a patient outpatient and they're sent home with a long list of prescription medications um, and you ask the patient or they come to you and they don't have any drug coverage, um, what kind of is your best plan of action, the best place to start, um, how you can help them, how you can ask your staff? So make sure that you've explored all of the options, all of the different ways they could get access to coverage. If you've done all of that, including with your team pharmacist and they're still not covered, then you have to get even more creative. So for example, this is a trick that I learned from our pharmacist. Many medications, they cost the same whether or not they come, for example, in a 10 milligram or a 20 milligram strength. So we do things like write a prescription for the 20 milligram tablets, but then patients will cut them in half. So they've halved the drug costs, right? So it's like all these little workarounds that you kind of learn from different people um, as kind of last, last ditch um, efforts. So you just kind of kind of work the algorithm, uh, work your team members, and um, uh, and you may not you know get to total coverage, but there's things you can do to make uh, the experience and the cost a little bit better for every patient you take care of. Thank you. That's all the questions that we have today. Is there any final information or advice um, or anything that you want to leave with the listeners today? It can sound kind of, it can sound a bit discouraging when we describe the, the workarounds or all the extra work we have to do to get patients covered. But I think the good news is there's so many people that recognize this problem and there's just so many people who are working towards it that if and when you decide that you want to do that as well, you'll find lots of colleagues. You just got to find your people, find the groups that you want to work with, um, and um, 
and you know, and start to get involved in trying to make the system a little bit better. Thank you so much, Dr. Raza. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Clerk Commute Podcast. Catch you in your next commute.